Well, you may have noticed that in the Bible there's not just one gospel, but four gospels. And each gospel will tell similar stories, but from different angles and perspectives and in different ways. The author of each gospel was trying to write in an orderly account. They didn't just start at Jesus' birth and then write each detail that happened all the way until his death and resurrection. John even says if they'd done that, it would take more volumes than the world could contain. And so each author, each gospel writer, is writing in such a way to convey the truth about Jesus. And Luke, you may remember, we just finished seeing the Sermon of Jesus. And right on the tail of the Sermon of Jesus, the famous one, the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, John, sorry, Luke gives a section showing three sets of scenarios in which Jesus is showing who he is and then showing how people should respond to him. Actually, four sections. We see these from chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, verse 3. And in all these sections, Jesus is not only showing who he has come for, and that he has come for all, he also shows that those who receive him are often outcast. They're often those who would be considered down and out, maybe even too sinful. Thus, if your Bible has headings, you can see in chapter 7, verse 1 to 10, the story we're going to look at, that Jesus heals a centurion, an enemy's servant. Then in verses 11 to 17, he's going to bring back to life the dead son of a widow. Then, in the next section, John the Baptist is going to question, Who are you? Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? There's this, the centerpiece of this section. Who is this man? And we'll see right after that next week, that some accept Jesus, but those who you would expect to, the religious leaders, deny him. And then this section ends with Jesus being anointed by a quote-unquote sinful woman, showing that he has come for all. The Pharisees and religious leaders are shocked. But Jesus is showing that his authority, his compassion, his love is for all types of people. And here this morning we'll see this in two stories. First, in verses 1 through 10, the healing of the enemy's servant. And then in verses 11 through 17, the raising of the widow's only son. So as I said, Jesus just finished his sermon and now he walks into Capernaum. And there, a centurion sends some elders of the people to go talk to Jesus. Now, a centurion was a military officer and sent, like a centimeter, there's a hundred of those in a meter, or a century, a hundred years, in a hundred years, and a century, a centurion was over 100 soldiers. Very important man in their military situation. But here, the centurion is not a Jewish centurion. This would have been a centurion of the people who had conquered them. You imagine yourself in World War II living in Germany-occupied France and looking out your window and seeing Nazi soldiers. You would not think, oh, I'm glad they're here protecting the city for us. You would hate them. You would despise them. You'd fear them. And here, there's this, this centurion that everyone in Jewish society normally hated. And yet there's a twist to the story because the centurion cares for his slave. He's being shown as a person of compassion. And yet centurions. They're supposed to be these wicked, cruel, horrible people. And yet, no, he's a compassionate, caring person. And this really contrasts with the people of their day. The Roman writer Varro wrote this. He said, the only difference between a slave, an animal, and a cart. Is that the slave talks. 
And yet though this is the common view of human slaves, this centurion cares. Cares so much that he wants his love, his love servant to be healed. And so when the centurion hears that Jesus has the power to heal, what does he do? He sends the community leaders of Convertium to go and talk to Jesus. Well, how did the centurion know about Jesus? Well, he must have heard. Someone had to tell him. How do you know about Jesus? Well, someone, maybe your parents, maybe a friend, maybe a pastor told you. You know, faith always comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So how are people in Antofagasta, Chile, going to trust in Jesus? Well, they have to hear. How are people in China going to come to know and trust in Jesus? They have to hear. And so the question we need to ask is, who is hearing from us? Because they will never have faith without hearing. And how are we supporting those in Chile or China? Because their faith will never come without hearing, without people who proclaim the good news. Well, back to the story in verse 4. These leaders, these elders of the community go and they ask Jesus to heal the centurion slave. Now, so far into this story, if you're just reading it from a normal perspective, you would think, boy, I bet these Jewish elders really hate this. They have to obey the centurion because he's in charge, and if they don't do what he says, they'll probably punish them. But boy, they're going to Jesus and like, we have to tell you that the centurion wants his slave healed. We don't really want it, but we got to obey the guy in charge. And yet the story has another twist because that's not who the centurion is at all. They come, they actually are pleading with Jesus. We think you should do this. And notice the language they use. This man is worthy to have you do this for him. You know, this is someone who they think deserves Jesus' love and kindness. And they explain why. Because he loves their people. He's even built them a synagogue with his own money. And so here, he's a man of wealth. He's a man who can use it. And so far, the centurion's really being, being portrayed not as a wicked, cruel man, but as someone who's compassionate, someone who's a generous philanthropist, someone who supports religion and who loves the Jewish people. By any human standard, this is the type of person who should Jesus should help. Also, Jesus goes along. Now, this is important because it shows that he cares for all types of people, even those who are Gentiles, even those who might naturally be considered his enemies. You know, Jesus didn't hear this and spit on the ground and go, I'm not going to go help that guy. I'm not going to go help a leader who is overseeing our conquered nation. No, he goes to help. And yet, on his way, the centurion sends some more friends. And the friends speaking for him say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now these words are astonishing on so many levels. You know, first, he calls Jesus Lord. He says he's the authority. Not him as the centurion, but Jesus is the authority. But second, he says that he's not worthy for Jesus to come under his roof. You know, this is the exact contrast. The same words are used. What do the Jewish elders say? This guy's worthy. What does the centurion say? I'm not worthy. 
Now, if this happened today, we'd send the centurion off to a psychologist. Your self-esteem's too low. Come on. You're worthy. You've got to build yourself up. And yet, what happens next? Well, really, the centurion's messengers continue in verse 7. Because they, they say that he doesn't think he's even worthy to come to Jesus. Not just enter his house. He's not even worthy to be in Jesus' presence. Now, this mirrors the words of John the Baptist in Luke 3.16. There, he's talking about Jesus, and John the Baptist said, He is mightier than me, and the strap of his sandals I am not worthy to untie. You know, Jewish masters would demand many things of their servants, but it was accepted in their culture, but they could never ask their servants to untie their sandals. That was too demeaning a task to ask even a servant or a slave to do. And yet John the Baptist says, the most demeaning thing that a slave wouldn't even do, I can't even do that for Jesus. And that's the type of thinking the centurion has here. In comparison to Jesus, I'm not even worthy to be in his presence. Well, then he even says, Jesus, if you just speak, my servant's going to be healed. You know, and the centurion explains this because he says he too is a man under authority. And he gives three examples. He says, go, and the soldiers go. He says, come, and they come. He says, do this, and they do it. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is a man who has authority and is under authority, just like the centurion is. The centurion's not Caesar, but he's not a soldier. He's in the middle. He's under authority, and he delegates authority. In other words, the centurion realizes that Jesus was sent by God, and he's authorized by God to act. You know, Jesus was and is eternally equal in power and essence with God the Father. And yet, he submits himself under the Father's authority. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He came to be under the authority to do the will of his Father. And the centurion is realizing Jesus' authority and that his authoritative commands must be obeyed, even from afar. But notice verse 9, because one of the Bible's most shocking statements is given. It says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. The God of the universe marveled. You know, that word for Jesus is only used one other time. And that is actually kind of the reverse. It's when he's in his town of Nazareth. In Mark 6, and he marvels at their lack of belief. He's either marveling at, how can these people who grew up around me not believe? And yet, here he's marveling at this centurion's faith. And so, not just does he marvel, what does he do? He stops, and he turns to the crowd, and he talks to them. You know, he, what is he doing? He's saying, this is important. Notice this. I'm sure you parents have done this. You maybe go somewhere, you see something, or something happens, and you stop. And you talk to your kids and like, Dad, we get it, we get it. No, no, this is important. Understand the significance of this. We're going to stop and talk about it. Dad, we get it, we get it. No, you don't get it. Understand. And Jesus is saying, look, stop. Everyone stop. Listen, did you just see what happened? This is amazing. I'm marveling at what just happened. I want you to have this type of faith, he's saying. Well, then the story takes an interesting twist. It just kind of stops. They go home. The servant's healed. Apparently, Jesus didn't go. And yet, it's showing that Jesus' authority is not limited by distance, 
or physical presence because the servant is healed. When this story is really highlighting three important things. First, it's highlighting that Jesus' authority extends even over illness. You know, he came to defeat death, disease, disorder, and they're all due to the depravity, to sin. And yet we can become so familiar with the Gospels, with the accounts of Jesus healing. Yeah, yeah, he heals people. And notice, Jesus doesn't heal because he's a magician. He doesn't cast spells. He doesn't duel with the forces of darkness. He's the authority over it all. And so he just speaks and diseases flee. Not only is Jesus the authority over diseases, but he exercises that authority from a distance. Now remember, why was Luke written? Luke was written to Theophilus so that he might know that these things are certain. Now Theophilus knows he's never going to be right now on this earth in the presence of Jesus. So is this same Jesus able to work in my life? Well, yes. He doesn't have to be physically present to still be active in your life. Yes, even today, he has said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's given us his spirit. And yet he also shows us with that that he is concerned and acting in our world, in our lives. Well, second, the story highlights Jesus' willingness to love enemies and show compassion to all. Again, he could have said, a centurion? I'm not going to help those type of people. They're hurting us. I'm going to get back to them like they hurt us. I'm going to let his servant die. And yet he doesn't do that. You know, Jesus here is saying someone who might be a natural enemy is not necessarily an enemy to me. And I think it's really interesting as you read through the Gospels who all Jesus interacts with. You know, he never fawns for people's approval. He doesn't just say what people want to hear so they'll like him. But neither does he go where many of us go and then start to get angry at the rich and powerful. Oh, the rich and powerful, they're all wicked, horrible people. Oh, they just want money, they're so horrible. Oh, they just want power. Well, yes, are there rich and powerful people who are stingy, who are greedy for power? Yes, but I've met poor people who are stingy and greedy for power. And Jesus doesn't show favoritism to the rich or the poor. He shares his love with all. And here he's showing this by reaching out to someone who most would consider someone you wouldn't reach out to. Jesus is showing that his love and compassion will go to people of all races, all positions, all manners of wealth. Well, third, this story highlights the type of faith that God praises. First, this faith recognized Jesus' power and authority. You realize Jesus was not just a good man or a miracle worker. Jesus was a man of authority and under authority. And the centurion's faith also recognized his own unworthiness. Again, if we were to stop and go, okay, what type of people in society really deserve goodness? Well, we'd say compassionate people, philanthropists who are generous with their money, people who love all types of people, people who encourage good things. Well, that's, that describes the centurion perfectly. And yet when he says, I'm not worthy, Jesus doesn't say, well, well, can you all go correct the centurion? He actually, he's the type of guy I came for. No, Jesus says, that's the type of faith you should have. Even if you're the type of person in your workplace, in your community, in your church, 
that everyone goes, oh, that's the type of person we should be like. Jesus says, you're still not worthy. Now, was it that this man should have low self-esteem? It's that he needs to realize who he should compare himself to. If the centurion is merely comparing himself to other humans, well then, yeah, he probably is very deserving of help. And yet he realizes he's not comparing against another mere human. He's being compared to the Son of God who has all authority. And in comparison to him, he is completely unworthy. And Jesus is showing that real faith in him also confesses our unworthiness to be with him. I remember hearing of a woman who was a very talented painter. And through a set of friends, she was able to get one of her paintings entered in this kind of art contest with other really well-known, very talented artists in the region. And she was so excited. But the day before, an art critic, a friend of hers, went in and looked at everything. And he called her and he said, you know, you're not going to want to hear this. But out of our friendship, I need to tell you that your painting just is not really near the level of quality of anything else and I really think you should take it out because otherwise you're just going to look really bad tomorrow. And the woman didn't want to hear this. She wanted to think I'm as good as all these painters. But she went up and she looked. And in comparison, she realized, I'm not bad. But compared to everyone else, this is kind of like the kindergartner with the high schooler. And so she put it in a side gallery. And as people saw it, oh, that's nice. But she realized in comparison to greatness, I'm not there. And that's what's going on here is the centurion compares himself to true greatness. He goes, I'm completely not worthy. Not that on a horizontal human level or plane, he's a horrible person. But that when you compare yourself to the one who is all authority, he couldn't even come in his presence. And Jesus, like the artist friend, is gently letting us know now we're not worthy. However, the good news is he says, if you admit your unworthiness, I will in fact make you worthy to come in. I'll give you my righteousness. So you are welcome and accepted by me. So don't believe the lie that you need to wait until you have it all together. And then, okay, I'll come to Jesus. He says, the only thing you need to come to him is to admit you can't. And so Jesus is showing us that the faith that he praises is a faith that pleads with him that is confident in him that admits he doesn't deserve it but then luke is going to give us another story highlighting jesus compassion and concern for all people so in verses 11 through 17 we see the raising of the widow's son and the next day jesus goes and he walks to the small city of nain and as he's going he's got this great crowd following him again he's got his disciples and as he approaches the city gate, there's a group coming out of the city gate. Now, isn't this amazing? The city of Nain is about 20 miles from Capernaum, and they've had to walk all day. And yet, in God's sovereignty, he perfectly aligns their footsteps so they meet at the gate at the same time. As one commentator said, God wants to make sure the way of life meets the way of death. You know, all death is tragic, but this funeral is especially so because it's the one and only son of a widow. And not only had she had to grieve in her life that she'd lost her husband, now she also has to grieve 
that her only child is dead. In the Old Testament book of Amos, God is warning of coming judgment. And in Amos 10, 8, 10, he says, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son. The end of it like a bitter day. So when God wants to describe the worst kind of suffering, how horrible it could be, he says it's like if you lost your only son. And yet that's what this woman is experiencing. And this widow is deeply mourning. And yet it's not just that. There would be a fear in her heart. Because in their society you needed men to help you economically. Almost all the work that could provide was physical labor. And thus she knows she's in need of support. And some of the language here that Luke uses parallels language in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And if you read the book of Ruth, you get the same glimpse that Ruth and Naomi are in trouble because they don't have a kinsman redeemer, a man to help them along. And so the widow here, she's poor, she's needy, and in, on top of all this, her only son has died. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, as Jesus is going into the city with a crowd, a crowd is coming out with this woman, knowing the grief she's going through, and also knowing the tough road that lies ahead of her. Now we have to pause for a second and realize that the normal customs for burial in their day are not the same as ours. You know, they didn't have funeral homes. Unless you were very wealthy, you weren't embalmed. Thus, you can look up in commentaries like I did this last week. What did their burial customs look like? Well, first, a person was not buried for, prepared for burial until death. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's like the most obvious thing in the world. Of course you wouldn't prepare someone to be buried unless they're dead. Except that's significant, and sadly we have to point this out, because some people will read stories like this and go, okay, all right, well, what, what really must have happened here is first century people were just kind of really not that smart and this young man had probably fallen into a coma or something like that. And Jesus, he had a kind of probably deep, authoritative type voice. And so when he spoke, he woke up the young man. Okay, first century people weren't gullible. They weren't dumb. They weren't idiotic. They realized when someone was dead. Now, though you may watch movies and hear you're only mostly dead, you're all the way dead or not. There's no in-between deadness and aliveness. Aliveness. Either alive or you're dead. The young man was dead. Dead, dead. No more dead than dead. He was dead. And they knew it. And so he was prepared for burial. Well, the second thing is their family members, as you might know, would tear their garments and they would close the deceased eyes. Third, they would anoint the body with oil and bury it that same day so the odors would not begin to accumulate. Fourth, the body would be wrapped and put on a, like a plank of wood, they called a bier, you may have seen that word, word, and they would put on it for all to see. Well, understanding those things, that helps because as Jesus is approaching the city, he sees the woman. And verse 13 says he has compassion on her. Now, is this because Jesus is still God and always will be, and he's omniscient and he knows? Or is Jesus Sherlock Holmes and noticing clues? Hmm. Woman, elderly, by herself, a child, no other family around her. This must be a widow with her only son. Well, we're not told, so we could speculate either way. But whatever, he has compassion. 
He knows what this must be like. And he feels her plight. And so Jesus goes up and he says to the weeping widow, do not weep. Now Jesus must have missed reading the top ten things not to say to grieving people. You don't tell someone grieving, hey, you shouldn't really cry, it's not a big deal. And if Jesus is merely just a good teacher with good morals, he is being extremely insensitive. And yet Jesus wants to show he's more than just a man with some good ethics to follow, a good example for us to emulate. He wants to show that he has all authority. And so Jesus goes up and he touches the buyer, the plank, and all the ones carrying it stop. And then he says, he commands, young man, I say to you, arise. Now, again, I think we don't catch the astonishing nature of this because most of us have read the Gospels. We know the stories. You imagine if for some reason you had to go to a funeral tomorrow and as you're going from the church to the cemetery, a guy pulls his car in front of the hearse. He goes and opens up the back of the hearse and opens up the coffin and says, young man, I say to you, arise. Well, everyone would look at this guy as someone either who's crazy or someone who's very cruel. They wouldn't go, oh, what a wonderful moral teacher. This is great. No, who does these type of things? However, the story doesn't just stop with Jesus saying that because verse 15 says, the dead set up. Now you may know that Luke, the author of this gospel, was a medical doctor. And though some may claim, again, this kind of idea that this man wasn't really dead, Luke would know. And Luke does not write, you may have noticed verse 15, he doesn't write, the young man arose. He said, the dead arose. He's very clear, this man was dead, and now he is alive. Not only that, but the man begins to speak, and Jesus gives him to his mother. The language here is a restoration, complete healing. And the wording also is really kind of alluding back to 1 Kings 17 that was read earlier. Because after Elijah healed the young man, same words, he gave her to his mother. And the people realize these connections. You can see it in verse 16 and 17. Because they say, a great prophet has arisen among us. But first, they're in fear. Now, this is kind of interesting. Wouldn't we think, wow, this is great. We could stop paying medical bills. Let's just get Jesus to come around. Boy, this is, no, they don't think this is wonderful. They realize that they are in front of someone who has authority, in front of someone who should not be trifled with. This is someone who just spoke words and the dead came back to life. This is, this is not just some great medical procedure. This was an awesome being. And they, they know the stories. They know of Elijah and Elisha. Both of those men did this, as we read earlier. We read one of those stories. And yet, sadly, most of them are never going to see that Jesus is more than just a prophet. You know, next week, as I hinted at, John the Baptist is going to ask, verse 19 of chapter 7, Jesus, are you the one that we're waiting for? Or should we look for another to come? And a lot of people keep saying, well, no, he's just another one. And you might be in the same place. You might be in awe or amazement of Jesus. You might say, wow, he has some wonderful words. 
He can make your life a little bit better if you follow his example. You might think he's done some great things. But you might also think, well, you know, Confucius, he had some good ideas. I need to kind of use some of those. And Buddha, he had some good ideas. I'll take some of those. And, you know, there's some Eastern ideas. We'll take some of those, some spiritual teachers. Yet Jesus' actions have already declared that he is more than just another great prophet that is like the former ones. And he is far greater than any other spiritual teacher that has ever lived. Now, it's not just that his teachings are better or that his miracles are more miraculous, though they are. It's that he's a completely different order of beings. And notice again, verse 14, how Jesus brought this young man back to life. He says, I say to you, based on his own authority, he says, I have the power to command death to stop. You know, the power to bring him back was not that he was merely a prophet and connected to God. It was that he is God himself. You know, Jesus is saying his power is not dependent on anyone or anything else. It's not even on the faith of anyone to ask for it. Because you may have noticed no one asked Jesus to do this. No one was believing he could do this even. You know, it's interesting. As you go through the book of Acts, there's these men, these sons of a priest named Siva. And they want to show that they have power. So they start going around trying to cast out evil spirits. And in Acts 19, 15 through 16, one of the evil spirits answered them and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. Now yes, Elijah, Elisha, they also were involved with men being brought back to life. But they had to do things. They had to lay on the bodies or do these various things so that it might happen. Jesus speaks and the dead are brought back to life. You know, in Luke chapter 4, verse 36, we saw Jesus' authority over demons. In the story before this, we've seen Jesus' authority over disease. And now Jesus is showing he even has authority over death. You know, the centurion had realized some of this, but he'd not seen and heard that the dead could be brought back to life. You know, the centurion realized on some level what Jesus would later declare, recorded in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, everything is under Jesus' authority doubly. First, it's under his authority because he created it all. And as the creator, everything is under his rule. But he's also over it because he bought it back again with his own life. He redeemed it. And so Jesus is the ruler over all twice by his creation and then by his purchasing it again. You know, out of his great compassion and love, he gave his life. To conquer sin and death. You know, we read earlier of how when God wanted to convey, when He wanted to show the deepest level of grief, He referred to the loss of a one and only Son. And God knows this greatest sorrow. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then in light of this great authority, he gave himself and loved us. 
we're called to trust him. He has the authority, but he used it to love. Won't you follow him, he says. And to trust is to realize like the centurion that he is the true authority and that before him we are completely unworthy. To trust him is to do as we read last week, to obey. Even after Jesus' words in Matthew 28 that he says all authority, what does he say? He then goes on to say, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The trust that Jesus calls is a trust that recognizes his authority and submits to his authority. You know, have you come to trust Jesus like this? Not just merely that you confess, yeah, I've done some bad things and I know hell's really bad, so I'm going to believe in Jesus. But he's authority over all. And that your life should be submitted to him. That you're completely unworthy, but in his deep love, he reached down and rescued you. We'll notice that in verse 16, the people also glorify God because they say he has visited his people again. You know, I'm sure many of them are wondering, what in the world is going on? We're supposed to be God's people, and yet we've been conquered. Where's God? What's he doing? Why the silence? But God has spoken, and he's visiting his people again. You know, the language that he's visiting his people is really an echo. Because in Exodus 4.31, when Moses comes, it says God has visited his people. In Ruth, when they hear that the famine has ended in Israel, Naomi says God has again visited his people. And so they are recounting God coming to visit his people as he has in the past, but now in a much greater way. And so the news of Jesus, verse 17 tells us, goes out to the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Now that might seem like a small incidental note to make, but it's anything but. You may remember when Paul is defending the faith to King Agrippa, he says to him, King Agrippa, these things were not done in a corner. You know, the fact that Jesus raised a man back to life, it's not, okay, well, there's this woman who lives all, all by herself. She said that Jesus once healed her son. He was dead, but he brought back to life. No, there was a crowd following Jesus. There was a crowd coming out from Nain. Anyone who wanted to refute this could have gone to Nain and go, okay, there's this story circulating that Jesus once came here and brought a dead man back to life. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. No, 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 no. That couldn't be true. No, everyone in town knows we were there because we knew what a horrible life she was going to have. And he's actually down the street if you want to talk to him. Anybody could have gone. This was not done in a corner. And when God calls you to confess that he is the true authority, he doesn't say, well, there's really no evidence, but what you need to do is just take a leap and just believe because some book somewhere says it. There were witnesses Showing of who he is. And so like the centurion, like Luke's commendation of Theophilus, there are good reasons to believe the hundreds of eyewitness accounts. So see, behold, trust this amazing Christ. He's a compassionate authority figure. You know, again, no one asked him to bring this dead man back to life. He took the initiative in the same way, it was before we cried out to him that in his love, he took the initiative to come in our place. But he didn't 
Just wait. He came and he's going to come again. And thus it says he will speak again. Paul declares in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. And with the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. God's sheep hear his voice. Jesus will speak again and all of his sheep will be risen, arisen back to life. You know, one of my prayers is that as I or Keith preach, but you're not merely hearing us. I actually hope you don't even recognize us, but you're hearing the word of God coming to you, that you hear his voice just coming through mere men. That we're really nothing, but he is speaking. And he's saying, do you hear my voice now? Will you hear it when I come again? You know, the, the dead man who was raised in name, he later died. But when Jesus comes and calls again, says, you dead, come forth. They will be arisen. We will be arisen for everlasting life. You know, he is the compassionate, authoritative, loving Savior. And he's calling now. Are you listening? As it says in Hebrews, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I'll close with this. You may have read J.R. Tolkien's book, The Fellowship of the Ring. Well, in it, they're going along and they're having all kinds of troubles and they finally decide, we need to go through the caves of Moria. And they get to where the cave entrance should be and yet it's semi-hidden. And there's supposed to be a secret word or phrase said to enter. And they don't even see the door till the moonlight comes and shines on it. And on the door they can read it says, Speak, friend, and enter. Well, the leader, Gandalf, he kind of sits there and he thinks and he gets his staff. And finally he starts saying all these different incantations or phrases to get the door to open. And he says them in different ways. He says them louder. He says them softer. He says them faster. He says them slower. He says them angry. He says them soft. Finally, he says one morning, he strikes the door and nothing happens. And so he throws his staff down and he sits down. And after a while later, he stands up and he says, friend, because it said, speak friend and enter. And he says, friend, and the door opens. You know, Jesus says, all you have to do is realize that he says, friend, all you have to do, that's it. You don't need to live this wonderful life. You don't need to do this. You don't need to do that. You don't need to do all these things that we think we have to do. Jesus speaks and says, you can be my friends. All you have to do is say, friend, that you gave your life for me. I'm unworthy, but I trust you. You can be my friend. So will you hear the voice of the wonderful Savior? He is calling. Let's pray. Lord, that is our desire, our request, that people would hear your voice. That new life would come from your word. That life would flourish because your word is life. And he came that we might have life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.